Thanks for listening to the Prevention of Blindness Society of Metropolitan Washington event replay channel. The replay of this event starts now. And we will share the recording after the event on our website, youreyes.org, and via email. Again, all of the recordings are available at youreyes.org, Y-O-U-R-E-Y-E-S dot O-R-G. These recordings have timestamps for you to navigate to the speakers and topics that interest you most. Now I'd like to introduce Sean Curry, POB's uh, Associate Director of Programs, for more information. All right. Thank you, Nick, and good morning, everyone. It's really great to see you all again. I'm sorry I missed last month, and I'm excited to be back. Um, and we're very excited today to have our guest speaker, Dr. Hang Nguyen, join us today. Before we get started, however, just a couple announcements. So first, our next town hall. Our next town hall will be Wednesday, December 15th at 11 a.m. And with it being the holiday times, uh, we're getting close and folks are starting to go and see one another again. We thought it'd be a great opportunity to um, have the topic of talking about getting through the holidays with low vision. And we're gonna be very, we're very honored to have uh, Nina Glasner, a licensed social worker join us. She focuses on individuals who are blind and vision impaired in her practice. In addition, if you're, we are currently planning our spring town hall meeting topics. So if there's any sorts of topics or themes that you'd really like to hear more about or want um, us to cover, please feel free to let us know. And you can do that by emailing us at events at youreyes.org or giving our resource hotline a call at 301-951-4444. As a reminder, our resource hotline does remain active Monday through Friday, 11 a.m. to 5 p.m. And in addition, if you'd like to have an in-person appointment at our Bethesda Low Vision Learning Center, they're available on Thursdays and Fridays by appointments, again, from 11 a.m. to 5 p.m. We welcome anyone, including yourself if you have vision loss or friends and family. If you or someone you know would like to be added to our newsletter mailing list, you can give our hotline a call or email us at events at youreyes.org. And these newsletters, uh, for those of you who don't know, we mail them out every month. They're in large print. They can be via email as well. So if you have a screen reader, that's great. Uh, and they have all kinds of different low vision related topics from resources and services to general eye disease information. Speaking of resources, our resource guidebook, Your Eyes and Low Vision, is still available. We still have large print paperback versions, and you can also access it on our website, youreyes.org. Our low vision team has compiled this resource guidebook of over 100 pages. Uh, and their help, this can be really useful for those of us who have low vision as well as our friends and family. And the great thing is most of the resources and services in this guidebook are free. If you'd like to receive a large print resource guidebook, you can give our hotline a call or email us again at events at youreyes.org. And we welcome you share this information with uh, anyone you think may be interested from community centers to loved ones and even doctor's offices. We've made it even easier to listen to recordings of today's town hall. 
You can find our town hall calls on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and more. You can even ask your Alexa to play the recordings with just your voice. So if you have an Alexa-enabled device, you can say, Alexa, play Prevention of Blindness Society of Metropolitan Washington podcast. You can give it a try, or you can give our resource hotline a call for assistance. Finally, November is Diabetic Eye Disease Awareness Month. Um, and did you know that diabetes can cause vision loss? In fact, diabetes is a leading cause of blindness in the United States. And often, unfortunately, diabetic retinopathy and other eye diseases um, consistent with diabetes don't show a lot of early warning signs. But the good news is regular eye exams can help catch these issues early on. And with regular treatments, controlling your blood sugar levels, and regular exercise and a healthy diet can all help to slow or potentially even prevent vision loss from occurring from diabetic eye disease. To learn more, you can visit the National Eye Institute's Diabetes Education page, which I will link in the chat box, or you, we can also share this link via email if you email us at events at youreyes.org. So now I'd like to pass the mic over to Dr. Alibi. And Dr. Alibi, are you there? I am here. If my internet cuts out or anything, please let me know and I will switch to the phones. So give me a thumbs up if you can hear me fine. We hear you great. Okay, great. Good, good morning, everybody. It's nice to see you all again and it's really a great pleasure to be back here. I continue to enjoy our virtual interactions. And I guess that might be the only good thing I can say about the pandemic that we've all learned how to Zoom and find ways to stay in touch virtually at least. However, there's nothing like seeing you all in person. And I really look forward to perhaps in the new year, having some live meetings where we can all be in the same room at the same time. So as Sean mentioned today, we're very, very excited to introduce um, Dr. Hong Nguyen, who is a new doctor to the area. She just completed her low vision fellowship at the Low Vision Research and Rehabilitation Center at the Wellmar Institute at Johns Hopkins in Baltimore. You will recall that at the very beginning of this pandemic, when we started these town hall meetings, Dr. Belinda Weinberg was working with me. And ironically, she's now moved to Baltimore and she's practicing low vision there at the Low Vision Center. And when she met Dr. Nguyen there, she did encourage Dr. Nguyen to consider joining us in the metropolitan area. And so I'm very happy and we're very fortunate to have Dr. Nguyen join us. And I'm delighted that she'll be part of POB's low vision program on a full-time basis. She'll be seeing patients in all three jurisdictions, Maryland, Virginia, and DC. And this will be the first time we actually have a full-time low vision practitioner other than myself in this area. So you can really appreciate why I'm so happy and excited to have her choose our metropolitan area to practice low vision. 
Now, Dr. Dalia El Kasabani, um, for those of you who have seen her, is still going to be with, with us here in practice. And she sees patients two days a week um, in Virginia and, and DC only. So now with Dr. Al Kasabani and Dr. Nguyen on full time with me, I'll finally have time to get to the golf course and take all that time off that I've been dying to do and just relax. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding, of course. Really, hopefully now it'll ease the load on my schedule because I know many of you get very frustrated having to wait um, two or three months sometimes um, to see me. So this finally will enable us to have a schedule which allows us to be um, seen, allows you to be seen more, more readily. I see there's a question in the chat about how to spell Dr. Nguyen's name. And so I'll verbally spell it as well. Hong is H-A-N-G. Nguyen is N-G-U-Y-E-N. -E so it's Hong Nguyen, Nguyen, okay? So I see Dr. Nguyen there, she's on. And so Dr. Nguyen, welcome. If you turn on your microphone, we will have a conversation and maybe I can ask you a few questions so we can get to know you and you can get to know the community here. So Dr. Nguyen, you're originally from Florida. So what's it like to be somewhere where it's a little bit cooler? Um, I love it. Um, I was never a person that could stand the heat. <laughs> and as you know, Florida gets hot and then very hot and humid. Um, so I don't, I don't know how I spent the very first decades of my life in Florida and not, um, not realize that there's such beautiful seasons and weathers up here. So um, my first time experiencing snow was about two years ago and it was um, very peaceful, it was very nice. Um, so I'm really happy to be experiencing the seasons and, and kind of feeling all the different weather. But I'm also really happy that I get to go home once in a while and, and um, vacation in, in my home state as well. Wonderful, wonderful. Well, you know, Dr. Nguyen, we don't get a whole lot of snow, but the good thing is if it's, if it's even an inch of snow, practically everything comes to a total standstill and no one, no one dares go outside and the roads are chaotic. So you can look forward to some snow days, but they'll be pretty slow days. Let's put it that way. <laughs> so Dr. Ann, what got you interested in low vision? That's a question people often ask me. So I'm going to ask you the same thing. Yeah. And I appreciate that question. Thank you for asking. Um, low vision, when I first heard about it, I was in optometry school. And um, it was just a topic that was kind of breezed through in the beginning. We didn't get those courses until about the, our fourth year. So it's a long time before any of us get to experience what exactly is low vision. Um, but I've always been the kind of person that needed to know everything. Um, and I know that that's not possible, but knowing the best of my abilities to be able to help my patients was my primary goal. Um, since starting school. Um, so I knew I always had to do a residency, but 
during school, I had so many interests. I loved learning about ocular disease. I loved um, the topics that were difficult for me because I needed to know more about it in order to help patients. And just hearing about low vision, it was something that, that tugged at my heart. Um, but as you know, when you don't go through the rotations, you're not sure if it's really what you're looking for, if, it's, if it is as good as it sounds for you. Um, but when I finally got to go through my rotation and I'm lucky to go to the school that I did because they made us go through everything, um, everything in our field so that we get that experience. Um, I remember a lot of my friends were not very excited to go into low vision. They've heard things before they go in and um, they just wanted the rotation to be done with. And I was scared that that was gonna be happening to me, but thankfully um, I rotated through one of the more busiest times of low vision um, compared to my classmates. And my closest friends would always tell me, no, you're really gonna like it, Hang, don't worry too much. And when I went through it, I loved it. Um, I really, really liked being in the different clinics that they had at the lighthouse back home at the school clinics, we saw a variety of patients with different problems. And it really felt like home. It was something that I really like to do or want to practice one day. So you did your fellowship up at, at the Wilmer Institute at Johns Hopkins, where, where I did my training too. Mind you, mine was many years ago, more than two decades ago. It's hard for me to believe that myself. And Tell me, what experiences from there do you think you could bring to us in this area to help enhance what we're able to do for people who are visually impaired? What, what kind of things did your training at Johns Hopkins at the Wilmer Institute provide you that you would like to bring to us here in this area? That's quite a unique question. I haven't been asked that before, and I really appreciate that question because um, what I really appreciate going forward when I went through that training was that I had to work with different types of doctors that had different ways of practicing, had different ideas, and different creativity. Um, and it was it was doctors and it was also therapists and um, different types of people in different specialties rotating through and everybody just bounced ideas off of each other. Um, so I, because I was the fellow, I, got, I had to work with everyone and kind of use all of their ideas to mold into how I want to practice in my own unique personality. Um, so I think that I would bring on a different ideas, not so much different from how we all think already, but just a different level of creativity, maybe some resources that um, are newer as well. When I picked up at Wilmer, um, because I think compared to low vision rehabilitation decades ago versus now, things are different. There's different things all the time and we have to be the ones that are on the forefront of showing and explaining that to our patients. So I think just the new new ideas, if any, and just new resources that are available. Okay. Well, oh, and I think, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you. No, no, go ahead, please. 
Um, one of the very important things that they emphasize during the fellowship is not just clinic, it's also research. It's a, they're building a clin clinical researcher and that's the way that they want you to think while you train. So along with that, and I think it's a good area to be in, um, is to just bring on new questions that need to be, um, that need answers to. And I, I think that's the basis of research. It's what, where are we having the issues? What's been helping? What are the questions that we need to ask and how do we answer them? And that that's um, another thing that I would like to bring into the areas is what are we lacking and what can we do to help in, in terms of research? Mm -hmm. No, I, I think, you, when you say that, it rings a bell with me because recently the one of the biggest meetings that happens in terms of research and clinical help for people in the vision field is called ARVO. And I've often talked to many of my patients about that, that they'll often ask me, what are the new things coming out? What are the things that our doctors that we see are not telling us, where do you get all that information from? And I always tell them there's this one big meeting once a year called ARVO, A-R-V-O. And that's where clinicians and scientists come together and talk about some of the more cutting edge things, things that may not be accessible to you when you just see your regular eye doctor in practice, but things that hopefully in the future become the standard of care and standard of practice. Um, Dr. Nguyen, you gave a presentation. It was a virtual presentation because ARVO was virtual um, this year and in 2021, next year, probably they'll finally go back to a live meeting. But you gave a very interesting presentation. Now, I know it was it's a very technical presentation, but perhaps you could just give us, you know, give us an idea a little bit about that presentation you gave at Arvo, um, which was it was more of a poster presentation. Am I right? Um, which um, I thought was a very well done presentation. And um, like I said, it may be a little more technical than people here, but maybe you could just allude to it because I thought it was very interesting. Might. Yes, yeah, so it was a virtual presentation. Um, Arvo, I think, is so unique, as you say, it's clinical researchers coming into together to help each other. Um, so my, my research focus during my fellowship was based on rehabilitation outcomes, based on low vision rehabilitation. So it was primarily focused with occupational therapists who are um, specialized in low vision and their patients. Um, of course, these patients have already seen the low vision specialists and they work hand in hand with that. But what we were focusing on was how, how much does rehabilitation truly help patients relative to what the therapists really feel is helping them. So there's no definitive answer, but it's all in relation. So do occupational therapists and patients agree the level of benefit of the, the rehab? And what we found was that um, occupational therapists seem to overestimate the, the benefits, the outcome relative to how patients feel. So I wanna kind of emphasize that there's not one party that's not doing the work versus the other. It's just in relation, there's not too much of an agreement 
um, of the outcome of rehabilitation, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, it makes sense. And it, and it always makes me think as well as a practitioner, when I'm seeing my patients and they're saying to me, here are the things I'm having trouble with. And I come up with a solution, a workaround, as I often tell many of my patients is, I'm not able to give you back your sight. I'm not able to fix the problem, which is ultimately what we would all like, obviously. But I'm providing a workaround. And it could be that I, as a practitioner, could say, I came up with a successful solution, a workaround, a strategy, a tool, and put it down in my chart as, okay, this was a good strategy. The patient, you all out there might feel, well, you know, he told me to do this, or now I have Dr. Nguyen, she told me to do that, but it doesn't really satisfy me. And how do we bridge that gap, right? That's something that as practitioners, we, we always um, struggle with to some extent. So Dr. Nguyen, do you feel that it's still beneficial to have a sort of multidisciplinary approach where we are working as low vision providers with other members of the rehabilitation field, like you mentioned occupational therapists, and we've had on these calls an occupational therapist, Lynn Stevens has been here, um, Christine Huang has been here too, and we consider them integral. And how important do you think it is to have this sort of multidisciplinary approach to providing vision rehabilitation? I think it's it's essential. In my opinion, I think that um, it's for the greater good. I think that it it's one of the best things that we can do for patients themselves. And again, I really, I really, really um, appreciate the school that I went to because the first thing that they emphasized was um, interprofessional relationships in regards to your patient as a whole. So the classes that I took were with dental students, were with um, DO students, OT students, PT students, um, and we had to learn how to get along and communicate with each other. So that's kind of where my foundations are. And going into low vision, there is such an importance to working with everybody because we have our ideas and the way that we're taught to think and practice and OTs have their ways of thinking and practicing. And when that comes together, it's, it's this beautiful harmony that essentially we're just trying to help the patients in different ways in different areas of their life. And I think when we see our patients, they're not just their eyes and what they wanna do and their goals. We have to focus on, are they receiving their care um, in every area, because that's going to affect them as a whole. So I think it's so important we continue and keep on building these relationships with the other professionals. That's really, I think, what's going to elevate our profession um, and, and just rehab itself to make it better for our patients. I agree. I agree. I think that's, that's a very good point. If if we could dream, Dr. Nguyen, if you could imagine yourself maybe 10 years from now in this area, if we, if you and I and POB could dream about the ideal rehabilitation program, 
and I know this is a difficult question. You have to think about it a little bit. If we could imagine and dream, what what would it look like for this area? And here are the complexities of this area. We're in three jurisdictions, Maryland, Virginia, and DC. We have issues with transportation, although we have metro access and now I'm, I'm gonna say we have a metro system that is supposed to work well, but of course we've all had experiences on what our metro system has been struggling with for a while. So we have transportation issues and we have areas in which some people are in the city, so to speak, and they might be able to access things more easily and some people live out in the suburbs, so they're not far from the cities, but still, it's a different environment. And how do we provide vision rehabilitation if we could dream and we could imagine? What do you think, and if you think of yourself as well in your career, as you imagine you're building the program here, where, what kind of model, what would you imagine would be the sort of ideal model if there is such a thing in, in, at all. And you can compare and contrast to, you know, what what you, the model you have up at Johns Hopkins, for example, at the Wilmer Institute. Um, you know, parts of that is so difficult to um, answer because as you said, transportation is just one of the really hardest things to come up with an idea that would help in all three jurisdictions. But I think the best model, if there was um, a perfect model, I think would be a comprehensive model mm -hmm. in terms of you have your low vision specialist, you have your occupational therapist um, specialized in low vision. I think even having a physical therapist, because there's a lot of physical components that our patients deal with as well, um, and, and just having a more comprehensive clinic where the patient's needs can be addressed a little bit easier, um, I think would be the ideal. And then having um, a center where all the tools are already present for them to train, to see is there really benefit to use this in my life when I go home? Mm -hmm. um, because it's things can be different in the clinic once they go home. So I think a comprehensive approach, so that way, um, patients can not feel like they have to wait super long either to come in would be the best. Yeah, no, I agree. I think we have all of those components. We have to have a model that allows people to be seen in a timely manner. And like I said, I'm, I'm delighted that you're going to be with us full time. That hopefully means we can lighten the load of one person who's working full time and just for everybody's information, Dr. Nguyen is being credentialed right now. It takes a little while for insurance companies to put her into the system where we can actually bill for her. So she, she's not actually seeing patients at this point. You'll see if you, any of you come to see me, she's typically with me um, and we're seeing the patients together, but hopefully soon Dr. Nguyen take sometimes a month or two to get this all done you you'll be you'll be able to see patients um, in all three jurisdictions jurisdictions as i said but like so one is access like you said i think we all need to be able to access the 
low vision program and the prevention of blindness has created the low vision learning center in Bethesda, which is a, a place where people who haven't been able to get an appointment yet can at least go and get an idea of what kind of tools and strategies there are, what resources do we have in this area. And that works very well in this model, having access to occupational therapists trained in low vision who are actually able to go to your home. So oftentimes we see patients and they able to use the tool or strategy in the office where we set everything up, but to translate it into the home um, is, is a lot more challenging. So having an occupational therapist, or even if you said a physical therapist go out, we're working with the state rehabilitation agencies, DOORS, DBVI, RSA, who have rehabilitation teachers and provide orientation and mobility training. We have great other access services in this area. We have the Metropolitan Washington Ear, where the newspaper is read. We have the Talking Books program. We have Metro Access, like I mentioned earlier. So I think all of these components are in place and we're gonna try, I think, to, to bring it all together in an even more comprehensive, like you said, Dr. Nguyen, and um, a, a, an easier way to go from one to the other. Right now, it seems very disjointed when you get referred for low vision or we send you somewhere, but to try to make it a smooth transition so you easily go from one to the other, I think would be ideal. So Dr. Nguyen, tell me what, what things do you find really challenging about low vision rehabilitation? Um, in my opinion, it's, it's sort of challenging when I am at a loss of resources to help the patients. So sometimes patients um, who are less fortunate or who have a certain um, a certain problem that is hard, like where they have maybe one or two different problems that's not making it easy and, and fluent for them. But the lack of resources sometimes make me frustrated because all you wanna do is just help them and, and even like let them borrow your eyes, things like that. But you, um, that's the part that really frustrates me is when I am at a loss to help them. Mm -hmm. um, and it kind, of, it kind of breaks my heart when I can't. And it ties into, again, what we said earlier about having access to all those other resources and having this sort of multidisciplinary approach, which enables people to take advantage of all the other resources we have in this area. We're fortunate that we're in the metropolitan Washington, D.C. area, where there are a lot of resources um, and trying to get everything to work smoothly and so that people can access them, I think is the challenge that we all have. And POB has done a lot to try to bridge this gap, so to speak. And I, I really applaud them for the efforts, Sean and um, his team, Tara and Sandy and uh, Nitesh, when he was here, made to, to try to bridge some of these things. So, Dr. Nguyen, let's, let's make it a little bit lighter. Tell us, <laughs> in, in this area, um, what things 
have you been able to do which you weren't able to do in Baltimore? Or had you been down to the metropolitan area and done all the fun things we have in this area? Or what, what are the things that you're enjoying about being in the Metro DC area as opposed to being in Florida or, or even up in Baltimore? Um, <laughs> I'm, I'm still really, really new in my opinion. I'm still trying to get things together um, in terms of living, uh, having the apartment a little bit more furnished but i have gotten to explore um a little bit of the restaurants um um takeout of course <laughs> i have not gone to into the metropolitan area too much i've only gone about once or twice um but i haven't really gotten to do much exploring i should make a list of things i want to do um and, and just get it done but i think that i want to there's priorities that I have to kind of meet first. And then um, the, the more fun things that I've done is take the Metro. I know that's not very fun for a lot of people, <laughs> but um, growing up in Florida, all you, all you do is drive everywhere. You don't get to um, breathe in the air after going out for dinner, things like that. So I really appreciate the ability to take other modes of transportation and walking. Um, I really like to just pretend like I'm a local and explore new towns and new cities. So I really like being outdoors and not being stuck in a car all the time. Um, so, so far, I'm really appreciating the, the, the small things that are here that I wasn't able to before. Wonderful. And I'm going to ask everybody who's on this call today, maybe to write into the chat if you can, or drop a line to Dr. Nguyen and tell her one thing she absolutely must do, having moved into the metropolitan area, one, one place you should definitely visit, one restaurant you should definitely eat at, or one activity that she should definitely do. So when, you, when, you, when you're done with this call today, if you're lucky, you'll have 35 different and new things to do. <laughs> or, you, or you might find you have a lot of overlap on some of these things as well. Okay. That would be really nice. I would really appreciate that. <laughs> <laughs> good, good. Well, tell us about why did you choose us and not go somewhere else? I mean, you had a lot of options. You, you've done a very prestigious fellowship at the Low Vision Clinic up at Johns Hopkins and it does open up a lot of doors and you could have chosen to do some primary care, but you, you chose us and you chose to do low vision as opposed to saying, well, I'll have it as part of my practice and I'll still do regular optometry at the same time. So give us an idea, what made you choose us? What made you decide that, <laughs> hey, this looks like the right fit for me? Um, so, my experience so far um, in terms of just life and my uh, career wise, my experience career wise, um, I've done my residency in a school practice and then I went on to do a little bit of private practice in a retail setting, just doing primary care. And then, um, and then I did my fellowship in low vision. So the reason why I bring that up is because I've learned the different areas of, um, of optometry itself in the profession itself. And I noticed that 
I was the happiest when I could have the extra five minutes with the patients to ask about their day or their family life, how their kids are doing. I love that human connection. I love being able to talk to people and having that time to do so. Um, but I didn't get that a lot in primary care and retail settings. And the academics institutions, I love too. I loved being able to teach the students what I could. Um, but I, I, I wanted to do things too. I didn't wanna just sit by and wait for people to finish and, and go in after. I wanted to be, I'm, I'm a worker. <laughs> um, so I've gone through those different modes. And when I went through my fellowship, it was perfect. It was the perfect training. It was the time that I got to be with my patients, the connection, using my creativity and actively working to help the patients. And it was just, it reminded me of being back in my rotation and low vision of how it felt and what it means to not just have a career, but get up in the morning and do what you love. Um, so that's how I knew that low vision should be full-time because it's what I love. It's not a career, it's what I want to do. Um, and choosing low vision services PLC was easy because it's a family unit. I emphasize that because um, one of the things that my mom really taught me was that wherever you go, you have to treat who you work with like family. Um, and it's easy to do that with you guys because we all really take care of each other. We're there for each other um, so far. That's what I've picked up. And most importantly is having the same philosophy, working towards a similar goal. Um, you know, I've met a lot of different people now, worked for a lot of different people. So it's important for me to get along with the team and, um, and share same values. So. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You know, that's very nice because you're right. I think when I come on these town halls, I recognize a lot of my patients because of their names. I see their, now because of Zoom, I can see their little pictures as well. And it's true, you're all like family to me. And when I work with you all, it's important that you realize that, like some patients always say, what would you do if it was your mother? And honestly, it would. what I do is exactly what I do. I look at it more this way. It's not what, what I do if, if, if you were my mother or my father. I look at it this way as, what would my mother think of me in the way I'm helping you? She was very big on helping people and being good to people. So my mother's no longer alive, but this is one way I remember her that I always say to myself, if my mother was looking at me right now, what would she want me to do? She'd want me to give the best possible advice, the best possible care and treat this person like their family. They're one of, the, one of us. So you're right, Dr. Nguyen, I think you're gonna find that we, we have a small community, even though we're a big community, Maryland, Virginia, DC, and you know we see patients from PG County, Montgomery County, Fairfax County, Loudoun County, the district, it's, it's a big area, it's a big physical area, but I feel very close to the community and even the ophthalmologists and doctors we have a refer here, it's a small network, sort of everybody knows everybody. And I think eventually you'll get to know 
a lot of these people too. I personally learn a lot from my patients, Dr. Nguyen. I personally find that patients will come in and tell me something and I'll say, wow, I didn't realize that, or wow, that is a better way of doing something. And it's wonderful to know that the patients teach us and educate us as much as we're trying to do the same. So in a way we're in this together because I don't have the perfect solution and um, everybody is contributing to this whole process of rehabilitation, learning to adapt to your vision once it's changed from some chronic condition or something that you've been born with. And how do we navigate this world with our vision impairments? What I'd, what I'd like to do now, and I see a lot of good suggestions for you, by the way, Dr. Nguyen, in the chat. I would definitely write all those down. They're great I suggestions. Know. Thank you. Thank you, everyone. <laughs> what I'd like to do now is to have you all ask Dr. Nguyen some questions because you may have some burning questions. And Terry, I see your hand is up. Maybe we can start with you, Terry. Good morning. Good morning. How are you, Terry? I'm doing well and yourself. I hope Hi. everyone's doing well this morning. Uh, welcome, doctor, to the M DMV. <laughs> As I, I still think that's Department of Motor Vehicles, but <laughs> I'm originally from Boston, not from Maryland. So I guess that has something to do with it. Um, I'm curious as to your viewpoints. I love the idea of a central area, a, a, some kind of a center type thing. But I'm curious about your viewpoints, not so much from vision rehabilitation in, in people who are losing sight, for instance, later in life, but people who ha are born with or have had incredibly long-term low vision, you know, most if not all of their lives, that who may not really need rehab, be involved with goals. And the other issue that I want to question is um, the fact that so many of our seniors are the ones who do experience later in life vision loss and so little of rehab money is available for their treatments. But I'm especially interested as far as people who have been visually impaired extremely long-term. Um, Does that make sense, I hope? I, I think so. And I'm going to answer that as best as I can. And please um, continue to ask that if it's not addressing those questions either and, and add on to those questions too. I really appreciate it. But as far as the long-term um, kids that were born with low vision or have had low vision for a long time, um, you know, having that comprehensive um, center or even having them in the low vision clinics is truly beneficial because it, it kind of goes both ways that we may know something that they have never thought about, um, even though they've had that low vision, they've been living it for a long time. Like the resources, like, have you ever considered talking to this person? And they're like, you know, I never did. And that's happened a few times. So, you know, as they continue on with their life, there's new things happening where we might know and they haven't known yet. And we'd be able to ones that kind of bring that idea. 
But the other thing that happens is that they become a really good resource themselves for other patients and having them expose that, hey, there's, you know, there's a community of people that haven't learned to adapt in their new vision. And, and you seem to do that so easily and you know all the tricks of the trade. Um, would you be able to come and help people, you know, even if it's at the center or things like that? Um, and to answer your question about, or your thoughts about um, older patients who lose their vision, um, I think, I think one of the things that really concerns me, and um, my brother and I talked about this a really long time ago, but as patients get older, even though if they haven't had vision loss, resources are harder to obtain because technology is ever growing. So a lot of our older patients may not be comfortable using the new smartphones and they're used to the landline phones, things like that. So I know that there are obstacles beyond vision loss that we have to consider for our elderly population, but I think that's having a, a comprehensive center as well would be able to help them um, address all those different things too. I'm not sure if that really answered what you were kind of going at, but um, does, does that seem to? It I would like basically, to add. Yeah, I go ahead, Perry. I think it basically does. I think what many of us have encountered is in the OT and PT and unfortunately in the medical field, it's a one size fits all. And that's what I think we need to work very hard to do away with. It's automatically, if you're over 65, then this is what you this is, you know, then it's just assumed that someone who is, who for instance, has been blind or low vision all their lives is in the exact same boat as someone who's experienced a vision loss in the last two years or something like that. And it's, it does, it, it seriously impedes their independence. And I think that that's um, something that desperately needs to be worked on, especially here in the DMV. And um, um, it sounds like you, you're on the, like you're on the right track. And I thank you very much for um, answering my question. Thank you. Have a great day. You too. Thank you for your questions. Thank you, Terry. That was a good question. And, and I, what I'd, what I'd add to that is there, there's of course a stereotype when we think of vision loss, most people don't understand what it means to be visually impaired or low vision. The consumers, the public maybe at large would think of either you're sighted or you're blind. There's nothing in between. So for people who are congenitally visually impaired or been visually impaired a long, a long time, you are very well adapted and you lead your lives what the what everybody would say almost normally and for somebody who is older and develops vision loss it's hard for them to sometimes recognize that this person is legally blind for example and i have people who work with me who are in my office who are legally blind visually impaired and I often say to my patients who are coming in for the first time that, oh, you know, the person who checked you in, 
is legally blind. Oh, you know, the person who you called and made the appointment is legally blind. And they'll go, well, they look normal. Well, yes, of course they look normal. They have two eyes, they have two legs. They are normal. And, but I mean, they function normally. Yes, they do function normally. And this is the important thing to recognize is that, you know, that stereotype that you must have a white cane or a seeing eye dog to be blind is not true. You can have this, what we call low vision, visually be visually impaired and still function normally. And, and that's, that's a bridge that it's, you know, sometimes hard to, hard to cross as well for somebody who's trying to understand what does it mean to be visually impaired. But when, when they see people who've been visually impaired a long time function so well normally, I think it gives them a lot of encouragement and hope that, you know, okay, I think I, I can live with this too. Anyway, anybody else have a question? I, I'm not sure how we do this question thing, Sean. Do they put up their hand or do they interrupt, whatever? We can do, we can do either way. If someone has a question, put your hand up. If putting your hand up is challenging for you, just unmute yourself and um, step in whenever we finish a question. I do see somebody has Did their I have hand a question? Raised. Oh, I'm sorry. Oh, I see someone has their hand raised. It just says iPhone. Oh, hey, Sean. That might be me. This is Ann. This is Ann Cook. How are you? I'm great. Um, Go ahead, Ann. I I just wanted to make a comment and maybe a question for Dr. Nguyen. Um, we were so fortunate to have her come talk with the Vienna VIP on Monday. And um, the thing she focused on was the, psycho, um, the psychosocial part of vision loss and dealing with uh, the grief of the loss. And I do think that's an area that is difficult to talk about sometimes, but um, I think getting to the crux of that often uh, is really important to do first before you can move forward. Um, I thought that was a very, very important um, topic to address, and I appreciated her um, her thoughts on that. And I th I think our group really uh, benefited from that. Um, I, as one who has gone through a journey myself, appreciate being able to share ideas about you know how you how you get through that initial part of dealing with the loss of vision, especially when it's later in life and when changes continue to happen. Um, since I work with both Dr. Albi and, and Dr. Wen now, um, you know, we see that with patients who are not really totally ready to comprehend everything that's happening. So I appreciate all of that information. And um, I guess I don't really have a question. I just wanted to make that comment. And we're so happy to have her with us now. Indeed. Thank you, Anne. Thank you very much. Did uh, <coughs> you have a question? I have a question. Oh, hold on. Uh, Rex Latham, 2008. <laughs> yeah, that's me. I had the pleasure of meeting Dr. Nguyen yesterday. And I'm, I don't have a question, but I, I suddenly thought of a suggestion, and I hope you don't mind. Uh, I'm one of those people that, as I told you, I have to, uh, if I don't make notes, we never had the meeting, 
or I never had the appointment. <laughs> and it suddenly dawned on me as I heard you speaking, I have a feature on my phone, which I think is called dictation or something. It's something I have to check out. Mm -hmm. I should have summarized the results of that meeting before I left the office and then played it when I got home because I looked at my notes and it's hard for me to read them. <laughs> so I'm still a little confused, but uh, I'll work through that. But that's a suggestion that I would perhaps offer that you might suggest your uh, patients if they have that feature to just summarize what they understand from the appointment and dictate it into their phone before they leave. If I'd done that, I would have been, be I would have been better off. So thank you very much. I have to leave for another meeting, uh, but I really enjoyed this and I appreciate the information and it was a pleasure meeting you. So thank you very much to both of you. Thank, thank you. you, Rex. Thank, thank you. That's an interesting issue while everybody else thinks of their next question, Dr. Nguyen, is we spend so much time with patients, almost an hour sometimes. And should we at the end of it say to them, okay, now tell us, what did we tell you? <laughs> Oftentimes patients go, my gosh, I don't remember all this stuff that you covered today, you know? And, and sometimes I think, well, should I have written it down? Well, they might not be able to read it like, like you said, Mr. Landum, it's, it's sometimes difficult to read it. Should we have some type of dictation thing that we do? Most of you have iPhones and things, so it's easy to dictate something into there. Here's one thing I have found most helpful, and, and Dr. Nguyen, I'd, I'd, I'd love for your, your opinion on this too, is it's useful to have a family member, a friend, a whoever in the exam room with you absolutely so that, yeah so that you get that person to tell you what the, what what transpired what was said you know because oftentimes patients hear one thing and yes. you know it may not be the right thing um but they interpreted it that way perhaps and having somebody else in the room means they'll go, no, no, no. I don't think he meant that. I don't think she meant that. This is really what it was. Right. So that, I find that helpful. And I encourage you, for me personally, to have somebody come with you and have them participate in this process even um, with suggestions, with thoughts, with observations, um, and have that person. And you can sit down, you, the patient, with that person at the end and say, so what was your impression of what transpired in the low vision evaluation? What do you think, Dr. Nguyen? I wholeheartedly agree with you. I am a big, big fan of bringing your family member, somebody that you feel comfortable with, who understands the way you think and the way you say things, because they are the ones with you who see how you do things. They know how you think and that they're going to add and help and aid in the rehabilitation process. Um, I think what I find a lot of times with patients who bring family members is as I'm asking the areas where we're having trouble in, the family members add so much more info that sometimes the patient's like, oh yeah, that's right. I, I forgot to mention that and it helps. Um, it's especially good for patients who are new 
and their first visit in low vision because a lot of patients don't know what low vision rehab is. They were told to come to the office and they're, they're scared. And having somebody who's familiar with you really helps um, with that process. Um, for instance, I know how my mom thinks and says things and does things and what she likes, but my, my four brothers don't. So um, every time they try to buy her a gift or make suggestions, you know, even being so far away from them for how many years now, it's still something that I'm easily able to answer because I know her so well. So it really helps when you bring someone and, and, and I know it's been hard with COVID and the social distancing, but I'm a big fan of it. I agree, I agree. Bridget, you have a question? Yes, hi, um, thanks. I am, um, first of all, I wanna echo what you both just shared about bringing a family member. My family, Dr. Alibi, they're in love with you, <laughs> aren't we all? But um, I have two sisters who've come with me to see you and the drill in my family when I'm going through um, my particular uh, eye disease brings on a host of other medical issues. So they come with me and they take notes with whatever doctor I'm seeing but they fight over who gets to take me to Dr. Alibi. And I also <laughs> see Dr. Alibi on my own when I'm feeling healthy and, and strong. But when I'm in crisis mode, they come and they take notes and then they email the notes to me. So even if I'm not able to access them myself, um, I can access that, I mean, access them visually. I can then access the emails with voiceover or with JAWS later at my leisure. So I think it's fantastic to have someone come. Caveat though, mm. I do have one sister who can be very bossy and she thinks she knows all about me, things that she misinterprets. She's overprotective and she doesn't quite understand blindness or, or how I function. Yes. So she has learned over the years and I've learned very, um, um, I've learned to be more diplomatic with her and less sisterly <laughs> to say, I need you. I want you there to be my scribe and to help me out. And yes, to bring things up that I might forget in the moment. But I also, if I give you a, a warning that no, that is not correct. I need you to respect that I'm talking to my doctor and that you, you're having your interpretation as my sister, right. but I want my doctor to listen to me as the expert on me. So I just share that with folks who might be on the call that we are still the experts on us. And it's great to have our family be there and remind us and support us. Um, but I've had to do that dance a little bit with my, my one sister. <laughs> the other thing I wanted to just share because it's, it's come up a good bit is, and it always does. Um, for me, I love the fact that we are more and more saying low vision as opposed to visually impaired. And language is always evolving. Um, and visually impaired is certainly out there, but it's, it's language that, and, and I use it. I hope we continue to move away from it and stick with people who are blind or have low vision more and more as we move forward. That's just my two cents. Um, because there is this sense out in the world of the uh, not normalness of it. And the reality is those of us who are blind or have low vision, I mean, for me, it's been 33 years and it is my normal. So um, 
I am in a constant education of others. And sometimes you're not really in the mood to educate others. Um, uh, so I just wanted to share that with you and the group assembled that I'm a big fan of, of the phrase low vision. Probably 10 years from now, I'll be begging us all to use some other phrase. And finally, I love the idea that you two are bringing forward to us, uh, to yourselves and to us, the community, of having a centralized, you know, sort of center place where we can come. And please count me in as someone uh, wearing two different hats. One, a Metro hat, where I would be happy, and I'm sure Metro would be happy to support me um, coming to be there a few hours here or there in this beautiful future plan of yours to answer Metro questions, Metro access questions, transportation questions. And secondly, I would wear a volunteer hat separate from Metro time of uh, being willing to uh, be a person who's walked down this path as has Terry, as have so many others to just listen and be a supportive person who has dealt with losing vision over the years. And I think that there are a tremendous number of people across the DMV who would likely be willing to sit in a cubicle somewhere and say, I'm here, I'll read my book. But if you have someone who wants to talk to another person, um, maybe that could be included in your visioning model of um, what might be available to folks who walk through your doors. Anyway, thank you both and welcome Dr. Nguyen. I'm so happy to meet you virtually and Dr. Alibi, it's always great to see you. <laughs> well, thank so you, thank you, Bridget. Yeah, no, we appreciate that very much. Tato has a question, please. Okay, yes, go so ahead. Uh, Chato has Chato. a question, go ahead. Thank you. I'm so glad that you have another help in your office, Dr. Alibi, Dr. Wynn. Uh, welcome to the center. Um, in addition to being supportive to having a family member um, be in the room when the patient is with Dr. Alibi or with Dr. Wynn, I think we should also, my suggestion is to also have a family member attend support group meetings with the patient. Because just like when you are with your doctor, what uh, everyone talks about in a support group environment is also important to the family member or a friend to also listen and understand Message. from others. Um, oh, sorry. Am I still speaking? Chato, we can still hear you, go on. Okay, I just heard your message. Anyway, I'm sorry, I don't know how to raise my hand via Zoom, my apologies. I still have to figure that out. Um, so um, just so besides the doctor's visits, it's also good to have uh, a family member during a support group meeting, which I have encouraged all our members here in Williamsburg to do, and they're delighted to attend. Um, my question to both of you is maybe not, uh, may not, may or may not apply to the comprehensive center that you're envisioning, but I just had uh, a, a slight encounter with TSA fra, from Honolulu to Washington, DC. I was wearing um, 
the POB low vision mask that says low vision. Yeah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and um, unfortunately, there was a glitch with my global entry um, number. So they made me go through regular stuff. They took the wheelchair away. They took my cane away. They made me remove my shoes. And they told me to, to put my feet apart, uh, stand apart, blah, blah, blah. And mm -hmm. I made it clear. I said, um, I'm sorry, um, I can't see that. I said, and I pointed to my mask. And I said, do you see? I'm low vision. I'm visually impaired. I'm legally blind. But the gentleman probably was not listening to me. All he did was he was pointing, right? He was pointing at my feet and, and he was not yelling, but then I repeated myself and pointed to my mask. Then came a female individual and still continued to say, uh, put your feet apart in that yellow blah, blah, which is not the color that I can see, even with a dark background. And finally, my husband was behind me and said, can I help her? And they, of course, yelled at him and said, stay, stay away, you know, move back. Question is, how do, especially Dr. Wynn, being that you're fresh from your fellowship at the Wilmer Center, has there been a program or a, a subject or whatever to uh, teach um, and provide probably seminars to the outside world to better understand what does a mask that says low vision perhaps or what does a white cane mean to the outside world? In other words, how do we continue to educate these folks in the retail industry or the TSA or even at, you know, at the grocery store or, or even the kids now? Do they really understand what a white cane means? How do we tackle this? Um, it was a very frustrating, actually embarrassing also on my part, because you, you know, as a low vision, you're like, oh gosh, they think I'm stupid that I can under I cannot understand instructions, right? Um, and I know it's a problem out there because I just read articles from ACB. I I there was news article on Yahoo News about how disabled individuals are having problems and feeling abused, verbally abused and, um, and et cetera, at different, you know, especially airports and all that. Sorry for the lengthy question. No, it's okay. Um, can you guys hear me? Yes, yes. go ahead. I'm sorry, my screen doesn't light up when I talk, so I was concerned, but first off, um, I'm so sorry you went through that. I don't think anybody should ever have to experience that, um, especially at an airport that's so busy and that you've clearly stated I am low vision, which is already hard to do um, for them to even not even consider low vision. I can't see that yellow line. You know, I, I'm, <laughs> I'm so sorry. You know, I, I wish I was there to make it better for you, but um, you know, and also, I've, I've heard a lot of great things about you, and I'm, I'm really happy that you're here today. Oh, but, thank um, you. Gosh. <laughs> um, 
you know, unfortunately, my time during fellowship was during COVID. It was a wonderful experience aside from that, but I didn't get to go out into the community too much because everything was shut down still. Um, what I do know in my experience so far out in the world and speaking to the low vision community is that there is a huge lack, a huge lack of awareness among the community in general. Um, you know, even when I go home, my, my family still doesn't know exactly what I do. Um, I have to explain it every time. And it's, it's something, and that says a lot because here is a low vision specialist and people don't really know what we do still. And there's a lack of awareness that we really need to work on. And right. that's the other thing why I chose low vision services because it gave me an opportunity to work on these kinds of practices, projects. Um, in terms of family member awareness, they did emphasize that a lot during my training and why they emphasize bring your patients, uh, family members. Um, it was unfortunate that during that time, the hospital did not allow any visitors to come with the patient. So um, we had to beg and write letters and do what we could so that they can at least bring one person with them and it worked. So when we put our foot down, when we really explain it, um, I think it can work, but it takes a lot of work. It takes time too. And you know, all of this low vision rehabilitation is fairly new compared to the other professions. Um, I know that POB, speaking to Sean, you know, there are things that we want to work on in terms of family awareness and low vision and how we can improve. Um, so I hope that makes you feel better. And one thing that I want to kind of bring up is that um, the generation that's younger than me, they're very, very about um, equality, making the world a better place. And technology is really considering patients who have disabilities um, to make the world a better place. So I'm really looking forward to the difference that people are making or going to make in the future. So I really thank you for sharing that story. Yeah. Thank you for that. Yeah, thank you, Chado. And I think you made a very good response there, Dr. Nguyen. Just so for clarification for people who probably didn't understand what Chado was saying is early in the pandemic, people were making face masks with different kinds of things on them. Some were just for fun, right? To have a face mask that didn't look like a surgical mask, but the cotton masks. And so um, with POB, we tried to think of a, uh, a symbol that would help somebody understand that the person they're dealing with is now low vision or visually impaired. Sorry, Bridget, low vision. Um, and we were so concerned about social distancing at that point. So if they were getting closer, because as we know, people are visually impaired get closer. Um, how could we signal that? And this symbol on the mask is actually something that's been adopted from Canada where they're trying to come up with a universal symbol for low vision. The universal symbol for blindness is well understood. It's the white cane. The little um, sign that signals blindness has a person with a cane out in front of them walking. So that's become 
sort of accepted as the symbol for blindness. But we don't really have a universally accepted symbol for low vision, but this is one attempt to create that. So I don't think it's universally accepted or understood that that mask represents low vision. And what does low vision mean for those of us on this call today? Of course, we, we appreciate and understand the nuances of low vision, the different levels of vision and so on and so forth. But to the public, like some of my patients with a white cane would say, I don't think this person even understands what a white cane is. So right. unfortunately right. that ignorance exists and we will need to continue to educate the public. And here in, the, in Old Town in Alexandria, one of our board members from POB was on the aging committee for, for something on the council of Alexandria, I've forgotten exactly what it was. And I remember being invited once to a meeting held here at the city hall in the city of Alexandria, where they had representatives from each of the major departments which would interact with the public. So they had the head of the fire, the, the fire department, the police, the, the utilities, um, the public services. There were, there were about six or seven heads of these departments and they'd invited me to speak on behalf of visual impairment. And they'd invited somebody who does the same thing for hearing loss. And we gave presentations about how to educate the people in your department who interact with the public, who might be from, our, from my standpoint, of course, visually impaired. So the training that would be needed and the understanding and the recognition that would be needed so I think we need to do more of those kinds of things where we get an opportunity to address these department heads and they, they are willing to hold a meeting like this. This was held by, like I said, somebody who was part of the aging department and said, hey, I think you guys all need to learn about this and disseminate this information to your respective departments. Anyway, so that's a, another long way to answer that. I want to quickly get to two questions. I still see Kent. I'd like you to go first. And then when Kent has finished his question, Barbara Melville, you can go next. Kent, thank you. Go ahead. Hi, Dr. Alipai. Um, Hi. Thank you. It's good to see you. Um, welcome, Dr. Wen. Um, could you just please comment on um, technology and the importance it has for mobility and orientation? And, and welcome. Thank you. Thanks, Ken. Thank, thank you for the warm welcome. I appreciate it. Um, so far, um, you know, just the other week too, technology and the use of mobility, I think it's still being worked on and it, it needs work on as well. But um, it's not perfect still for mobility needs, I mean. Um, I think it has the potential to be like those smart canes, but in using the GPS on your phone now that everybody's going the smartphones, but um, I really think that it's still not perfect. It's still not as helpful as it has the potential to be. But I, I still believe the white cane itself without any of like the, the talking abilities and whatnot are probably the best so far to help with mobility safety and efficacy. Um, new technology that, that well, not, not so much new, but 
technology that's been upgraded in the sense of like the Garmin wear and um, all those bands that vibrate when you are near something to prevent you from bumping on it in conjunction with the white canes um, are being worked on, but there's still limitations to those things that we've noticed. Um, some of them are still not as visually impaired friendly as it could be, I'm sorry, low vision as it could be. Um, and I think that there's another group that's working on a backpack for mobility and orientation and mobility, um, but that's still being really, that's still new. That, that research is still fairly new and being worked on. Um, so that's my opinion on it right now. I'm still a big fan of just a simple white cane and, and the training right now. How about a guide dog? I haven't met too many with guide dogs yet. I love guide dogs. <laughs> I love dogs in general, but um, they're helpful. I think that it's also patient focused too. So some patients solely rely on the guide dogs because they don't even find use of the canes anymore and they trust their dog. But from what I know that a lot of people, a lot of companies that provide guide dogs and the guide dog training, they won't even consider allowing somebody with a guide dog until they receive the white cane training. So it still goes hand in hand. Um, but I think having something is better than nothing though, to be honest, you know. Okay, thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Alibi. Yeah, it's a good question, Kent. And, and I think I'll just add to that, that the, like Dr. Nguyen says, um, we can have all this technology, but we may still have to have good basic skills, white cane travel skills. And it's just like, Kent, I use the GPS in my car, you know, more and more now. I've got so used to this GPS technology that I almost never use a map. Originally, I used to have a map of DC, a map of Maryland, a map of Virginia in my car. And I always referred to the map no matter where we went. Now I just plug it into the GPS. But there are many times, I'll tell you, the GPS has done things. And were I not paying attention and thinking logically, I'm, I end up in places where what, what the heck is this GPS done and brought me here, you know? So I think technology is great. It's definitely a game changer in many ways, but we will still need basic skills. I still need to, sometimes the GPS is just not finding my car. Maybe the satellites are not working and I open up the map. Thank God I've still got a few maps and I can look and figure out where I need to go. So in the same way, I think basic cane travel skills, using a simple white cane is still going to be important. And then we supplement it with all this new type of technology as well, right? Yes. Okay. Thank you, Ken. Barbara, go ahead. Hey, thank you. Um, doctor, thank you for joining our family. Um, I wanted to say a few things um, about low vision technology. Um, please don't forget about those solutions as cool as the electronic stuff might be. Um, Dr. Alibi helped me to purchase an Eschenbach lighted magnifier. And that thing has uh, really been my go-to. It's my number one item. And um, it's been dropped. It's been stepped on. It's, it's now taped. 
but I don't care. It still works, it keeps ticking, just like they say the, the watches. So don't hesitate to bring that up. It's something that people can afford, um, generally speaking, too. I mean, our technology, the good, really good stuff costs, I think, two or three thousand dollars. Unfortunately, it's not in a lot of people's budget unless they're a veteran working for, you know, federal agency and stuff like that. Um, also, uh, appropriate lighting for the person can work wonders. And some of these lamps are pretty inexpensive, too. Um, I also want to point out about the importance of the environment that people are choose to put themselves in, because that plays a big role in how things could turn out for you. And don't hesitate to suggest, uh, for example, that somebody move out of their big house in the far-flung areas, you know, the suburbs and stuff, and and you know maybe consider uh, moving closer into a walkable area, smaller space to clean, and you know less space to lose things in, and it it just uh, does wonders for the independence. Uh, for example, this summer, I, I had to go to Detroit, and you quickly realize that car town just, uh, they don't have the advocates there to really make the paratransit excel, and um, I, I was, I'm really blessed to be living in this Washington, D.C. metro area where we have so much and, and that is to the credit of the advocates in this area, Bridget being one and, and all the good folks out there. I don't wanna name any more as I'm gonna forget, um, but it, it's, it just opens up a lot of doors and there is just so much that can be said when one finds their own way to the store and not have to depend on other people for this stuff. And how do you put a price tag on that? I don't know. Each one will have to come to their own decisions on that. Um, so it is complicated. And we thank you for not only examining us and recommending things, but being a cheerleader for us, because that's so important that we just want somebody to understand. And especially as our we could have changes in our lives and that you guys are one of the few that really do get it. So thank you and uh, welcome aboard. Hope to meet you soon. Thank you so much. Thank you um, for sharing those um, comments as well. I really appreciate it. And thanks for the warm welcome. Um, I will never forget the basics that we are trained on. And I will never forget that sometimes the simplest solutions are really the best solutions. And the quickest solutions, head magnifiers are one of my favorites for just, you know, quickly doing things. So I really appreciate that. And I think it's important that you brought that up because sometimes as the world gets crazy and things keep evolving, sometimes truly the simplest solutions are the best way to go. So I appreciate that. Yeah, and, and, make, and take risks too, yeah. because um, <laughs> a lot of us think, oh, just because we have some help from a low vision person or whatever, that life is going to be clear sailing. Well, it's up to the person with low vision to actually go out and try a new route and, and walk somebody someplace where you've never been. And oh my gosh, it just, you might find some things that you, 
you never knew were there. And, and again, you just, you did it yourself and, and you're not gonna always win. You're gonna get lost, but, but that's okay. That's true. Thank you. Well, with those wonderful comments, um, I'm going to hand it back to Sean because I see that it is uh, 12.30. Thank you for all the comments in the chat and all the nice sentiments. And Dr. Nguyen, please do write down all those wonderful things people have to told you to do and see in this area. And like I said, I hope sometime soon we'll all be able to meet in person and you know catch up and have these kinds of conversations because I find them very, very helpful. And, and, and I know you do too, Dr. Nguyen. So thank you for joining us and thank you for joining my practice. I'm, I'm just delighted to have you. Welcome. Sean, back to you. All right. Thank you so much, Dr. Alibi and Dr. Nguyen. And thank you everyone who participated and attended today. Uh, as a reminder, our next town hall is going to be Wednesday, December 15th at 11 a.m. Please stay tuned for the announcements that come through our mailing and email lists. Uh, but without further ado, I do want to thank everyone again, and I hope you have a wonderful rest of your week, a great Thanksgiving, and I wish you all the best, and we'll see you next month. Thank you. Bye, everyone. Bye.